0: This is Thrash It Out, a show where we listen to a heavy metal album and then argue about it. I'm Brian Latendry.
1: And I'm Anthony Johnston, and today we are doing our second listener choice for this volume. Unusual, I know, but as we explained last episode, I kind of screwed up the selection. Uh, So blame me. We are doing Prong's 1996 album, Rude Awakening, which was nominated by listener Jonathan Moore. So thank you for that, Jonathan. Um, Yeah, and it's going to be an interesting one because this is a band that neither of us were really familiar with before, I don't think.
0: Yeah, well, it's funny because I was just gonna ask you that. Like, would you have ever seen yourself coming to a prong album at some point? Like oh, on, on the, your list? On this
1: show. Yeah. Almost certainly not. Uh I mean, you know, never say never, but yeah, yeah I, I think I'd probably heard maybe two prong songs in my life, or knowingly anyway, uh, before we started this episode. So and not for any reason. Right. We can get into that later, you know. It's not because I didn't like them or anything, it's just I don't know. For some reason, they didn't come into my sphere of stuff I listened to. Uh, so this was almost entirely new to me. Uh, and listening to this album and reading about Prong as well, actually reading a lot of interviews with Tommy Victor and stuff, has been really interesting over the last few weeks.
0: Yeah, uh, Prong was not new to me, but this album certainly was. And and uh, we can get a little bit uh, into that as we as we get into the actual album here. But first, let's jump into our news. And did you want to? chat for a bit before we jump into our Facebook uh feedback.
1: Yeah, I wanted to explain so listeners regular listeners know that we didn't do an episode uh in December a traditional episode. What we did was put out uh, a sort of Christmas reissue of our uh Christmas Eve and Other Stories episode from a few years ago. Um which was, you know, thematically appropriate and Absolutely. I'm sure it was an episode that a lot of people have joined us in the intervening years, probably hadn't listened to. So it was good in that sense. But we were actually planning to do this prong album as the Christmas episode. Uh, and then, uh, unfortunately, I don't I don't want to go into detail, but unfortunately, basically, my eldest dog died uh, literally the week before Christmas. So the holidays were not an especially festive time for me, as you can imagine. Um, and yeah, I just, there was no way... That I was because because up until the point that he went, we'd then we'd already spent several weeks before then caring for him and thinking, oh, he's on his last legs. This is not good. So I just hadn't had time to do any of the homework and research. That I mean, we could have. I probably could have done the episode, but it. I would have felt like I wasn't doing a good job. You know, I yeah. would have felt like I was winging it and not really giving it the attention that it or our listeners deserve. So, uh, yeah. So we thought better to just not do an episode and we'll come at it properly in the new year. And so that's what we're doing now. I mean, anyone who follows me on social media will know that, you know, uh, I'm kind of devoted to my dogs. Uh, don't have kids. So my dogs, you know, they're the surrogates. Uh, and, and we'd had him for mm, 13 and a half years. He was about 15 years old. um, Put it like this. I actually looked this up when we we got him in May 2005. 2005, nine inch nails released with teeth, anthrax reformed, disturbed released 10,000 fists. Wow, and Taria was fired from Nightwish. That's how long ago this was.
0: (laughs) Well, just I mean, from a career standpoint, right? I mean, if you kind of gauged where you were at 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 that time period and everything that's happened since then, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, that was the year I was releasing graphic novels like Spooked and Julius. Uh, It was, you know, this was, yeah, it was a long time ago. So, yeah, as I say, hopefully uh, our listeners will understand that uh, I just, I was in no fit state to do an episode, unfortunately. But life goes on, the show must go on, and so here we are in January, let's do it.
0: Yes, and and that uh, time gave plenty of people time to actually go and comment on the last episode that we recorded the last new episode that we recorded which of course was cvi by royal thunder and um man lots of discussion on that one a lot of it revolving around a very familiar theme but i'll get to that in a second so um (laughs) let's see people were excited right off the bat as soon as they heard prong by the way so hopefully they'll be pumped up for today's episode Uh, Greg Anderson has said, talking about Crusties, it's worth mentioning that the crossover with Grebo, they were virtually the same and include bands like Crazy Head, PWEI, and uh, Gay Bikers on Acid. There was a lot of ridicule of both cultures. None of those bands I recognize at all. Um, So you guys (laughs) had a conversation about that.
1: PWEI, you may know better as Pop Will Eat Itself.
0: I would only know them by mention of name and can't right. even think of what they sound like.
1: That's fair enough. That's fair. Enough. Although actually f- probably their most famous single is the one where they make loads and loads of 1980s nerd references, including some comics references. Alan Moore gets a shout out in the song. So oh, you'd nice. probably like it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I probably would. Yeah. It doesn't take it. It doesn't take much nostalgia to, to sort of pull right. me in. So. <laughs> um, Let's see well, what It, it wasn't
1: nostalgia at the time. This was in the '80s. This was c- contemporary stuff. Um, but yeah, uh, Greg's right that Gribo and Krusty and all of that was kind of the. It was a big melange of stuff. You know, genres were mixing a lot around that time. Basically,
0: uh, there was uh, here was the main theme of the article. Jack uh, Lawrence William Chambers said, "With Brian's definition of metal, including ACDC, Def Leppard, Guns and Roses, t- Guns and Roses, etc." I'm wondering, A, where does everyone else draw the line between hard rock and metal? And B, for Brian, are there any rock bands that you don't consider metal? Um... There's a very long thread there, <laughs> of, of yep. course, you know, people jumping in, and uh, it was funny because it it took about three quarters of the way down before Scott Hall jumped in and was like, "Yeah, this isn't metal, and this isn't metal," you know. <laughs> so, and I was like, "Man, it took you a long time to to jump in on that thread." There, I'm just trying to find if I saw any any bands in here that I mentioned. Um, basically, my take on that stuff is that, and Andy Larson. Echoed this, when I was growing up, many of the bands that people today would look at and say, "How can you even use the word metal in the same sentence as, as this band?" were considered metal, and it was the time that they came up in. Most of the hair metal bands that now people sort of scoff at, and it's kind of trendy to to you know call cheesy and things like that, were absolutely considered metal at the time. That Motley Crue, we had that whole discussion about yeah, that. Yeah. Um, well, and Guns N' Roses. Well, hundred percent, right? I mean, Guns N' Roses that, and that first album is so aggressive that I, I think you could certainly have a conversation about right. But, it,
1: but even around the time of like the Use Your Illusion albums, in the in the greater public's mind, there was no question that Guns N' Roses were a heavy metal band. Whereas yeah. by that point, most metal fans, most you know people who would consider themselves kind of hardcore metal fans, were like, yeah, not so much.
0: Yeah, and, and one of the things that we have talked about before as well is that, for me, it's not only sort of the sonic experience, but it's the emotional experience when I think of the heaviness of a band and sort of what I consider metal, and I also feel like a lot of bands cross over that line and go back again. So yeah, you know, yeah. looking back yeah, yeah. at what some of ACDC has done, um, you just mentioned Guns N' Roses, I, you know, even Stone Temple Pilots, You know, when you look at some of their earlier stuff, I feel like goes in that direction, but you could listen to a lot of their later stuff, and it's very, you know, pop-rocky and and stuff like that. So uh, there's a great discussion to be had there. I think what I loved most about that discussion is even, I was mentioning Scott a second ago, you know, he was kind of jokingly jumping in there. Everyone was very respectful, and it's always interesting to see where people have that discussion. And the reason that this brought When It it triggered something for me when I was reading through it. It it reminded me of the other thread that we had about Gary Holt's post on Instagram during the National College Football Championship. Because I think it was Imagine Dragons that was the halftime show during the college football national championship here in the States. Right. In that game, Imagine Dragons was the band that was the halftime show and I can't remember if they were being touted as a rock band or if they were being touted as I don't think it was metal I think it was rock that they were sort of listed as and um Gary Holt said something on Instagram about them being like the worst band in the history of Bandom and was basically saying like please stop saying that these guys are a rock band or whatever. And we had a good discussion about that because I think where some of that frustration comes from for a guy who's playing in Slayer and is sort of the core of the band Exodus is that here in the States, the National College Football Championship, but more importantly, the Super Bowl halftime show is like,
1: it's
0: it's held up as this prime time, absolutely huge spot that as a band, you could get to play one day, right? And forever, there has been a feeling from certainly the metal community, but even like the hard rock community of like, it'd be really nice if we could get a band up there that meant anything to us. And, yeah. you know, as opposed to the constant stream of sort of safe pop acts. And I want to say that Aerosmith got put up there at one point in time, but to me, that didn't fill
1: that right, particular but, but- need. But that's part of the issue, isn't it? Is that sure. like, that's as far as they'll go. And yes, to them, absolutely. they're like, okay, we've ticked the heavy metal box. And Correct. meanwhile, we're all like, no, you haven't. Yep. And that is exactly
0: <laughs> my point. And I think that's exactly what Gary Holt was basically saying is that, you know, I can just, I, I, I had posted like, I picture Gary Holt going out to get his paper in the morning and his neighbor across the way saying, hey, did you see Imagine Dragons played the halftime show last night on the college football thing? You're in a rock band, huh? You must've been really happy about that you guys are getting some recognition there and him yeah. <laughs> you know basically bludgeoning that guy to death with his newspaper um because that is that that thing right where yep. where people who are not fans of those genres will be like hey that's pretty cool right they got one of your bands up there and it's like no they really didn't they they really don't yeah they it's basically
1: the- It's the same issue, right? It's the same issue we've had for years over here with the Jules Holland show. I've mentioned the Jules Holland show before. It's it's the only live music show left on mainstream TV, literally, the only one. Um, And to their credit, they are very good at getting a great variety of acts, including unknowns and more obscure. And, you know, they do have rock acts as well as sort of, you know, pop or jazz or whatever. Um, you know, it, it's a good melting pot. But they, they don't have, like, you know, I mean we, I mentioned it. I know that I've talked about it before because I mentioned it when we did the Mastodon episode. That's basically the heaviest band they've had on there. Now, Mastodon are fairly heavy, but it's not, you know, they, this was their kind of curl of the burl, period. They were not, do you know what I mean? It's not like they were playing, Yeah, Slipknot have never been on there and would never get on there. Despite the fact that they were, you know, one of the best selling acts in the country for some years, even Linkin Park were never invited on there. They did have Metallica on to the best of my knowledge only once. And only when they did that album with Lou Reed. Oh Uh, yeah. And so it's the same kind of issue. It's like, Oh yeah, we have heavy metal bands on. We're like, no, you, you kind of don't.
0: Well, and of course it, it, think about that from the other perspective too right now now it's easy to think about why it's so tempting for bands and i'll use the this the new disturbed album as a good example of that right so disturbed comes out with their last album which overall i really enjoyed the song uh the sound of silence goes to be on a a humongous hit for them right probably Mm. maybe their biggest hit ever i haven't seen what the numbers are on that but certainly it sort of skyrocketed their mainstream acknowledgement because that song was getting played everywhere. So they come out with their new album this year. And lo and behold, isn't their new album a lot more leaning toward that kind of mainstreamy stuff? Oh, easy, it? I don't uh, think you're gonna want to go well, I'll be interested to hear what you what you have to say about that when you do finally give it a listen. But they definitely and and uh David Draymond, right? Yeah, uh, leaned very heavily into that and basically said, "Yeah, we're we're going, we're kind of taking it in a different direction on this album and and exploring some new stuff." And I think he, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but kind of acknowledged that new doors were opened for them because of that song off of the last album and the popularity that it got. And when you think about bands who are not as big as Metallica, who maybe have a hit that becomes a mainstream sort of thing, that pull to do music that will get you on these music shows or could get you a shot at being a halftime band or something like that, because it really is um, a line that is pretty firmly drawn of that stuff not getting acknowledged on wider platforms.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, Well, and that actually kind of brings us back around in a way to Tommy Victor and Prong, because of course that happened to them with that song snap your finger snap your neck from the cleansing album uh-huh. uh, which is you know the song that of theirs that everybody knows even i knew that one um and uh reading interviews with him and listening to him being interviewed as well actually more recently uh in the sort of run up to this episode his attitude seems to have been even at the time kind of like i have no idea why this is our most popular song but you know whatever we're just going to keep on doing what we do rather than leaning into it uh, right. and of course actually kind of leaned away from it a little bit uh, and ended up getting dropped by the label
0: <laughs> absolutely and we yeah we, we'll definitely talk about that yeah. so just a couple more things on on uh this particular album from royal thunder uh let's see mike stoner said i knew nothing about this album or band the first few tracks sounded great and i thought i'm gonna have to buy this but as it went on the quality went down and by the end i changed my mind sounds like it would have made a brilliant ep in this case too much is definitely too much so for him kind of overstayed as well it's welcome uh greg said as i mentioned before on the podcast i struggled to listen to this album uh, it's not the first time I've heard it. A sales rep at work recommended it to me a few years ago, as he considered it a hard rock album and something I'd like. I struggled to listen to the album back then. Listening to it again, I still feel the same way. None of these songs needs to be more than five minutes long. Um, and he goes on to explain, like with uh, particular songs, which one, which ones could have been cut. Uh, Dave Richards said, I'm glad you guys did this album because it made me take a second look at the band. I first discovered Royal Thunder via their appearance with Two Minutes to Late Night. I must have listened to their later albums because the ones I grabbed sort of left me flat. This album, though, is exactly what I didn't know I wanted, which is music that sounds like Brody Dal...
1: Pretty doll, the,
2: yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> of the punk band The Distillers and the late Spinneret singing for Early Black Sabbath. It's a hell of a listen, but I agree the front half is stronger than the back half. So this is something I'd have to be in the mood to listen to. But when that particular mood hits me, this is the perfect soundtrack for it.
1: Yeah, talking about crossover bands, there's a certain breed of metal fan who really liked the Distillers. I I kind of liked them, but I was never big into them. Um, and I can see the comparisons there. I wouldn't have made it myself, but I, you know, someone else making the comparison, I can like, oh, okay, yeah, I can see where you would, you know, sonically slot these into a similar kind of uh, vein. Although Distillers were much more on the punk end of things.
0: I would say that I'm mean, just looking at the responses here. I would say that it was over half. People enjoyed it. Um, there was definitely you know, a good split in terms of people that couldn't get it into really it.
1: really did split people, yeah, yeah.
0: But it also seems like even the folks that enjoyed it felt like it went on a little bit too long. Uh, CJ said, uh, I think I knew I was never going to get into this album. I reckon my chances of liking anything described as scuzzy, grungy, bluesy, groovy are about 500 to 1. <laughs> uh <laughs> Andy said, got to admit, this one took a listen or two to grow on me, but I really ended up liking it. Like Dave uh, says just above me, it's an album I didn't know I wanted. Uh, So he was in on that. Uh, Dave said, I enjoyed this album when it came out, but like Anthony, I mentally switch off after Sleeping Witch. Uh, Melanie's vocals, though, he said, what a voice. Um, Let's see what else. Uh, More talk about the classification of the record as potentially metal
1: um yeah you're always so this this is you it's like throwing a grenade into a crowded room like the genre arguments within metal more than any other genre of music i think even more so than punk like if you if somebody is you know hard to classify yep. uh and and you raise that as an argument amongst a group of metal listeners that conversation will go on and on and will never end it's like windows versus Macs. <clears throat> Uh, you know, or like Vim versus Emacs in text editors. It's just, it's one of those eternal arguments that has no resolution, will never end, but everybody has an opinion.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. And, and, And the thing that I will say again about this Facebook group, this community around Thrash It Out is that of the places that I've seen those arguments take place, of the places I've had those discussions myself, this is a wonderful place to have that discussion because people do let each other have their own opinions and they do offer context, you know, of their own experiences and their own history. And when you read through, you know, what people are saying, you you see how, why that's such a subjective thing, right? You see people's experiences and the other bands that introduced them to this band and this kind of stuff and how they came into listening to this type of music. All of that informs what you conceive of as metal. Um, And while I love the approach of like the, the, is it the headbangers journey, the, the um, anthropological study of metal that Sam Dunn did, I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head now, but while I adore that because it does give you some, he goes super deep and it does give you some really good uh, sort of clusters to think about, I don't. I don't hold to all of those you know, <laughs> definitions. I have my own feel of sort of what fits and what doesn't. Uh, so I love those discussions when they're creative and when they're civil and when they're sort of fun to dive into. But yeah, when they sort of turn into gates, that's where I struggle with that. Because, you know, for as we just said, we can't even get someone on the freaking Super Bowl halftime show. We should all be banding together right. and figuring out, like, you know, the the rock metal thing. Let's just... Let's just all get right in the middle there. Um, yeah, the
1: the enemy of my enemy is my friend. and all For that. sure. Um, I, I think some of it as well, and this is something that I've come to appreciate more in recent years, possibly really since starting doing this show, is uh, one of the things I like, one of the reasons I love music is, you know, just in general, is because of the emotional effect it has. And mm-hmm. I am fascinated when music that has an effect on me doesn't have that same effect on other people or vice versa you know music that other people find incredibly moving or you know uh, emotional does very little for me i find that fascinating because i'm really interested in i don't know just comparative experiences i guess that's why i love talking to you about this because we have yep. such different approaches to metal um and i think maybe because that's the show that we make that's the audience that we get and so we have a community of people who are yeah. also interested in other people you know yes we all have our own tastes and opinions and we're all gonna think that we have the best taste of course <laughs> that's right. natu- that's natural. Um, but we're also all, fascinated and interested by what other people's tastes are and how as you say how they got there why do you think this that's really interesting to me. that's something that you know you don't get in in every community uh and i never take it for granted
0: no me neither and i think the, the other thing that this community sort of echoes which this show has really uh brought up for me as we've sort of done this is that like anyone can say i love music right i love music i listen to music all the time i love music but if you really love music don't isn't there a part of you that wants to examine that and think about why and think about what what is the music you love why do you love it and, and this sort of self-reflective piece of it which for me has sort of meant like you know when i say i'm a lifelong metalhead and i love rock and i love all this stuff and and i feel like uh the question i have to ask myself all the time is well do you because if you do and someone is coming to you and saying like dude you should listen to this this album such had such a tremendous effect on me like if i truly love music and i love this kind of music specifically like wouldn't i want to dig into that and see what it has to offer me and that's where i love the fact that this isn't just me putting my picks out there or you putting your picks out there or us compromising and choosing an album together whether we're bringing the listeners in and they're giving us one like today that we probably would have never picked, or I'm listening to your pick or you're listening to my pick, like I'm constantly, or we're just going in the Facebook group, right? And seeing what people are listening to or what some of their favorite things are. I'm constantly having musical experiences put in front of me that I wouldn't even have known to seek out on my own, or maybe thought I knew about but never really examined deeply. And that's the thing that I love the most about this whole dynamic, is that it has made me put my money where my mouth is in terms of, do I really love music? I mean, do I really have that love affair with music where I want to not only examine the music itself, but my relationship with it? And that's one of the things that I love most about this, is it's constantly giving me an opportunity to examine that.
1: And I'm obviously completely in agreement, but... Again, one of the things I love about our community is that people who don't have that inquisitiveness about their own tastes, that's fine too. You know, nobody's sure. going to nobody's gonna say to them, oh, you're listening wrong, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or you're not a true fan or something. I mean, you unless know, no, you're skipping around on tracks,
0: that's where I draw the line. <laughs> if you're skipping around on tracks and you can't listen uh, through the whole album, at least, you know... My three listen rule. I I have a tough time with that, but yes, <laughs> no, I, I I jest. You're hundred percent right. Like it it doesn't have to be that relationship for everyone. But then again, everyone isn't doing a podcast where they dive into one album for two hours, like like we do. So clearly, there's this there's true. this compulsion on our part to really examine that and and sort of jump into that, which I am I'm glad this affords me the opportunity to do.
1: Oh, same here. I've always had a compulsion to do yeah. that sort of thing with my own tastes and my own sort of creative process and, and everything. So, yeah. Absolutely. For sure. Uh, anyway, and so speaking of that, we should probably get on and talk about the band. Um, well, just
0: two quick things I wanted to mention. Oh, on, if if you're in the Facebook group, one, uh, our friend Don Cardenas posted sometime oh, yeah, recently yeah. that he had started a brand new or was starting a brand new podcast called Comics Coffee Metal, And that podcast, the first episode, is out right now. You can go to soundcloud.com slash comics coffee metal and listen to that first episode. And as someone who did a comic podcast for 12 years and is doing music podcasts now, like obviously this is right in my wheelhouse, um, Don's a great guy and that first episode is fantastic. And also Darren Gleaton on our Facebook page has put together a monster playlist of, I believe right now, every album that we have talked about on this show. It's a Spotify playlist. You can go listen to everything that we've talked about.
1: Yeah, he says it contains... I'm reading here from the post. It says it contains every album discussed in length on the podcast, as well as the bonus episodes backstage passes, and even the mini-reviews from the Hangout episodes, which was the old video episodes we used to, uh, Sans the God Machine album, which I'm not surprised about because, A, it's hard to get hold of. It may not even be on Spotify for all I know. And, B, it's not really metal. It's a good album. I like it, but, you know, it doesn't belong on this playlist. Um, But, yeah, that's an enormous... Playlist. That is a lot of metal for you to (laughs) sink your teeth into.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And there's already been a couple of good comments of like, oh, I didn't realize they did this one. So if you are listening through that playlist and you discover something that maybe you hadn't heard the podcast episode for, then it's something to then be able to go back and dig into.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Don't forget all of our episodes are. Uh, still freely available either through the website, uh, or, you know, through your podcast player of choice, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, whatever it is, you know, everything is still there. We don't lock off old episodes or anything like that. So you can always go back and listen to an older episode uh, and laugh at our sound quality, no doubt, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, because they will always be there. They will always be freely available. You know, we, d- we don't restrict our archives at all. Um, and one of the ways we are able to do that is through the, uh, lovely support of our patrons. Uh, so let's get a quick plug in for that. Uh, maybe you're new to the show or maybe you just need a reminder. We are supported entirely by our listeners. We have, we don't do adverts. We're not done as sponsors. We're not on a podcast network. We are entirely funded by listeners. So if you want to help us keep the show going, um, go to thrashedoutpodcast.com. There's a link there, or you can go straight to patreon.com slash thrash it out and make a pledge and you'll get our patron perks of course which means you're then eligible to do things like nominate albums like the one we're going to talk about today uh or even to be picked to come on and talk to us on one of the backstage pass episodes which we should do another one of those soon actually um for sure so there's all that but also it just helps us keep the show going helps pay for our server costs uh you know our domain registration costs that sort of thing occasionally buys brian a new microphone you know, that sort of <laughs> stuff. um so yeah you know uh if you want to help support the show go there do that and make a pledge and we would be very grateful indeed but in the meantime yes let's say let's uh this was a listener choice this was the second album chosen from the um listener choice poll for this volume by as i said jonathan moore earlier uh, so thank you jonathan for that and yeah so let's Uh, talk a little bit about some facts about Prong for people who, like me, perhaps weren't very familiar with them at all before this. They were formed years ago, 1986. I know. uh, Which is crazy, by Tommy Victor, who's basically, you know, he is the band. He's the sole constant member, guitar and vocals. He was a sound guy. He ran the soundboard at CBGB's in New York. Um... And he formed the band with a guy called Mike Kirkland on bass who was the doorman. <laughs> See, I know, geez. isn't that crazy? <laughs> I think that's fantastic. Um, uh, after a couple of albums, uh, Ted Parsons, from who had been with Swans previously, also a New York band, obviously, joined as drummer. Uh, oh No, that, sorry, that was before. They, that was when they were doing their demo. They made a couple of albums with that lineup. Then they went through a sort of rotating, revolving door of bassists until they got what I gather is considered the classic lineup of Tommy Victor still, obviously Ted Parsons on drums and Paul Raven, ex um, uh, Killing Joke on bass and recorded what were basically the last two albums of the first part of their career, which was Cleansing in 1994 and this album, Rude Awakening in 1996. And notably, both of those albums were also produced by Terry Date, the only two albums of theirs produced by Terry Date. I think the fact that that's regarded as the classic lineup Yeah, I think that might have had something to do with it because the sound I've listened, gone back and listened to a few of the older albums and the sound on these two albums is it's kind of, I mean, you can tell that it's somebody like Terry date because, you know, it's got that really harsh, thick guitar sound to it. Uh, it's very clean. The drum sound is incredibly precise and clean. Um, and the earlier albums don't have that. They they're good they're well produced, but they don't quite have that crunch that you always get from a Terry Date production. So I think that's probably no coincidence. Um but then yeah, this album sold ten thousand copies in its first week and apparently in nineteen ninety six that wasn't good enough. No. <laughs> and then they got dropped by the label, which is like any musician listening to this now is like, What? They can't sell ten thousand albums about ever. Now. <laughs> Jesus. I know, right?
0: <laughs> um What's interesting too is you mentioned how the the those last two albums have sort of a different sound for me. Just in terms of my introduction to Prong, they they certainly had appeared on Headbangers Ball before, and, and uh, Broken Piece, Snap Your Finger, Snap Your Neck were, are two classics that you know they talk about becoming staples of of the Headbangers Ball sort of uh, circuit. But for me, it was their uh, 1991 album, which was Prove You Wrong,
2: mm-hmm. that
0: was the one that I that that is the first and only prong album that I ever bought. And there's a song off of that album called Unconditional that to me really sort of drew me in. I mean it was it's it's definitely on the more um, sort of metal, I don't want to say thrashy side, but definitely on that side of their sound. And that one song I was like, oh man, I gotta pick that up. It had a really kind of uh, great groove to it and that's what drew me to that and the album overall prove you wrong i felt at the time was kind of inconsistent and so it wasn't one that i listened to constantly but that was my prong experience and outside of that album really did not have a lot of frame of reference for them until doing this show
1: right well and i don't think you say that you don't want to say thrash but i don't think that's an unfair comparison oh yeah yeah Yeah, like I say, I wasn't familiar with their earlier stuff uh, at all, but I went back and listened to a lot of Beg to Differ, and it sounded like Puppets and Justice, that kind of era Metallica. Um, It even has a cover with By (laughs) Pusshead, for heaven's sake. But, like, I mean, you can hear elements in that album of what they would become, especially the groove part, but it is mostly a straight-up thrash album. Now, I didn't listen to Prove You Wrong, uh, other than the opening track. Um, the title track, I should say, but that was only a year later. So right. yeah, I'm I'm going to guess that it's probably not. I can un- I can understand your reluctance, but I don't think it's necessarily an unfair thing to say.
0: No, and I, if you put that sound in the context of like what Metallica was doing at the time, like there is definitely a sound overlap. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, yeah. Although sure. I, th- I do find it interesting that like that say that that debut was big to differ was 1990 which of course was the year of the Black Album when Metallica moved away from their traditional uh, latter-day thrash sound. So it's interesting that Prong's debut was still kind of hearkening back to that sound when a lot of metal bands were kind of starting to move away from it because of the success of the Black Album and, as we've discussed before, the onslaught of grunge that came in 91.
0: Yep. Yep.
1: Uh, what else have I got here? So, yeah, um, and then they reformed in 2002. Uh, basically, in between, after getting dropped by the label, Victor spent some years working with Glenn Danzig and yep. uh, Ministry, uh, both of whom he has interesting things to say about in various interviews. <laughs> oh,
0: nice. I, I pulled a couple interview things, but that was not one of them.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. And there's, I, I read like a range of interviews across a span of dates, including one where he's working with both of them and everything's fine. And then another one where he's no longer working with them and everything is not (laughs) fine. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Decidedly not fine. Um,
1: Although the one, I think he's actually back with working with Danzig again. now. I think you're correct. The the main difference between the two is that he's like, uh, at least Danzig pays me.
0: (laughs) Well, and I think it was, I want to say it was like 2004 that he actually got to write for a Danzig album, which is something that it sounded like was kind of on his bucket list of working with that band.
1: Which is understandable, yeah. yeah I mean, sure. you know, I, I'm not a huge Danzig fan, but if you are, then obviously, you know, that is a very tight circle, and so to be, it's a bit like Gary Holt with Slayer, isn't yeah. it? Really, it's kind of like if that is your thing, you know, you would never dream that you would have the opportunity to actually take part in being an element of that thing, and so yeah, like I say, not a huge Danzig fan myself, but I can understand that for him it must have been a huge thing even to be invited to uh to play and then write with Danzig. incredible
0: for sure um i do have a couple of interviews that i pulled quotes from from one from 2002 and one from 2009 in 2002 uh and i think this is something i saw come up in other conversations uh this was an interview by kinda music And it was an interview with Tommy Victor, and he was asked, in other interviews, you've claimed that Prong has been an inspiration for lots of new metal bands. And his response was, I've never claimed that. It was the journalist who did that. The statement was always posed to me, and I'm like, if Prong hadn't done it, somebody else would have. He said it was just the natural progression of the way hard stuff was going. Electronics and tools were only beginning to get available back then, unlike today. When I started detuning guitars trying to go lower, there weren't strings to do that. and the amplifiers couldn't handle it. Nowadays there's many different companies that make guitars that can sound low. So he kind of brushed that off of uh you know the him sort of staking a claim that you know, we were the inspiration for this stuff. Uh, they went on to ask, "What's your personal opinion of most new metal bands?" And again, this is in 2002. He said, "Personally, I think it's cool the way the bands have progressed. There are so they are very song oriented and use a lot of beats in their music. I'm not really a hip hop fanatic, and some people say that it's a condition for new metal." He said, "I'm pretty distorted about new metal. I don't really know what it is. Static X is a new metal band, and they are definitely in the vein of Prong. If new metal is the most modern type of metal there is, you might say Prong has always been a new." metal band. I don't like to play stuff that is really dated. That's why we moved away from thrash. It's all very subjective. Electronic freaks claim that anything with a guitar in it is outdated. Um
1: yeah, it's interesting talking about influences because the he he kind of brushes aside that question a lot. And he he's a, he seems to be his attitude seems to be, look, if people want to say that I've been an influence on them, I find that very flattering, but you know, I'm not convinced of it myself. You know, he's quite humble in that sense. He's like, Look, yeah, I'm just, I'm just doing like my that. thing. And, you know, I've always been on the fringes and I do my own thing and people like it or don't. And if they're influenced by it, that's wonderful, but that's not why I'm here. So whatever
0: which is which is a rarity right because especially oh, yeah. <laughs> in metal there's a lot of like we did this first i did this first we invented this sort of thing and so for him to be like yeah somebody else would have came along and did that if we weren't doing it is kind of a an interesting attitude to take about that this is an, another great question they say do you think a fair share of new metal bands drive on fake frustrations and he said yeah <laughs> he said he says uh what they're frustrated about is all very immature He said, that's all part of it, but I don't like to judge. Generations today are not into rebelling as much as they are into conforming, being cool, and selling a lot of records. It's not like the underground. When we were into hardcore, we didn't want to have anything to do with major labels or the regular rock scene. Eventually, the rock scene came to the underground, and bands like Nirvana, Prong, and Soundgarden broke out from the underground. He says, these kids today, they want to get a big deal. They don't want to be different he said they want to sound the same to get on the radio they play the game i'm not saying there's anything wrong with that but it reflects the way people are today which i thought was interesting because that that happened in every era yeah you know what i mean like that wasn't that wasn't unique to of course he's this is 2002 and he's talking about this particular time which in 2002 not a great time to be a band that has been around for a while and it's still trying to, you know, make ends meet and kind of do stuff in the music scene. So uh, I could see why there's a little bit of jadedness there. Um let's yeah, see
1: what else it, and like you say, but there's that's always been there have always been bands. I mean look at Def Leopard, you know it, like, sure. there have all there have always been bands that have taken something that other people will consider to be an underground sound and gone, why don't we shave all the rough edges off of this? and polish yep. it up and like get it played on the radio and then we'll be a hit uh you know there have always been uh, bands that do that in every era of rock music that's uh you know a new metal some of the new metal bands anyway were just the kind of you know just the latest part of that but yeah you know i i again i like the fact that he doesn't just go yeah it's all trash i can't listen to it it's bollocks right. things were better in my day that he is very kind of hey, you know it's the way it is you're going to make a living kids want to be cool whatever you know it's it's a generational thing i over the course of reading and listening to look uh, quite a few interviews with him uh in the run-ups of this show i have to say that i found him a really relatable character uh like he you know Across, Because it's easy to read one interview and think, well, but is he, you know, is that really, or is he just, uh, you know, sort of saying the right thing that he thinks people want to hear for the press might be. But when you see a range of interviews across a range of dates, and he's basically the same in all of them, you think, okay, well, clearly, you know, this is just how he is. And he, he, like, you know, he wants to keep it real. He has a very solid work ethic like really solid, especially in the last few years by the looks of it, Um, doesn't appear to be sort of dazzled or fooled by, you know, like glam life, big shot bullshit, which I really respect, Um, and basically seems determined to spend most of his energy doing his own thing without compromise, even though he knows he could make more money if he just did the same old shit or fit neatly into a nice genre classification Uh, but he's like, yeah, but I can't do that. I just, I can't do it. Um, and so he's just going to keep on doing his own thing. And I really, really, I relate to it to an extent, but I also just really respect it.
0: Yeah. And uh, I think you'll really appreciate this next thing that he said. So, uh, this was an interview in 2009 with rock and roll experience again with Tommy. And, uh, they asked him, was there ever a point where you considered giving up playing music? And he said, oh yeah, please, totally. He said, there were years where I didn't want to do anything. I was so disgusted with so many things. Mostly it was immaturity on my part. And uh, it was like I just couldn't handle anything anymore. It was where Prong was and the failure of Rude Awakening was a really devastating experience for me. When it came out, no one liked it. He said, let's put it that way. He said, you put out a record and believe me, I spent months and months and months of agony over that record. Just day in and day out working on the material. Me personally just battling it out every day for months, planning it out, working on it and relocating to Los Angeles and then the record came out and there was a couple of things in the mix I didn't like and Terry and I had major fights about but it was done and three weeks later we get dropped from the label when that happens he says you know what fuck this whole thing he said I couldn't take it anymore so you know he he was sick of everything he said uh, you know at some point I was like I'm playing with Danzig he's giving me a salary I get a good chunk of change each week and I'm gonna go have a good time and fuck all of this Then he said, after a year went by, and I was like, I didn't see any reason to build Prong back up. And it took like three years after all of that because I was just so disgusted. So clearly the time after uh, Rude Awakening, when everything started to fall apart, was pretty dark time. And he kind of just was done with that. Yeah. Um,
1: What I find interesting is that it was, by, by his own account at least, it was a similar sort of disgust that actually brought him back and made him reform prong because he basically got tired of writing like half of a ministry album and getting no recognition for it and uh got to and and also having trouble getting paid apparently and got to a point where he was like you know what fuck this i'm not writing any more riffs for anybody else i'm right. not giving anybody else my ideas i'm just going to put them back into prong instead. So it was a similar sort of disgust with the status quo that actually brought him back to releasing records again, but in a much more mature fashion, because it's interesting that you mentioned there that he said he spent months and months on this album, Rude Awakening. Uh, what he does now is record as quickly as possible. Yep. Uh, he's become a big fan of recording as quickly as possible, using first takes wherever possible, not second guessing yourself and just getting the material out there, which I, I tend to agree most of the time, not always, but most of the time with most rock bands tends to result in a better, more exciting record. Yes.
0: Absolutely. Totally agree. Um, he went on in that interview to say, you know, cause someone mentioned, well, at the time you guys were getting a lot of airplay on Headbangers Ball and you guys did have an established name, basically like talking about there, there, there was a, a place that you sort of had in the landscape, and he was just talking about management mistakes. He said, you know, I didn't even think we should have gone in and did *Root Awakening. I thought we should have continued touring for that record, uh, the record before it. And the label wanted us to go in and do a record. And we were like, fine. And then we had to pick the single for the record. There was major discussion about that. There were people complaining about the album cover. Uh, he It just sounded like it was a complete slog to, to get that album out. Um, and he thought it was all very rushed. And that sort of led to his disgust with what was going on. And at one point the interviewer says to him, "Uh, you know, it's funny. Have you seen the Anvil movie? And he says, no, the reason is I've heard enough about the concept and I don't want to watch it because I lived that shit. He said, why would I watch a movie? That's my life. Um, (laughs) So just to give you an idea of sort of where he sort of how the, the road that he feels like prong has been on, it's similar to that of Anvil, like this band that was there, and was around, and this kind of goes to the whole respect your elders theme, right? That that yep, is my sort yep. of theme for this season. Of you know, th- this band that has contributed a lot to the musical landscape to the point where some people point at them and say they were extremely influential on like new metal. And you know, there was a t- there was a point in time where they no one would give them the time of day. You know, and he was so disgusted with what the music scene was looking like that he walked away from it because it just they just never got that big break. They just yeah. never had that one thing that sort of skyrocketed them, or or whatever, and that's got to be immensely frustrating when you see bands all around you. Which is a story a lot of bands can tell, obviously. Oh yeah. Where you're seeing, yeah. you know, bands all around you that are just getting these deals and getting on these huge tours and all this kind of stuff. It's just, uh, it's just interesting how some of those bands fall through the cracks, and you can point it in every. Era and genre, you can look at hair metal bands that didn't, that were on Sunset Strip the same time as everybody else and didn't get that record deal. You can look at, you know, bands like Exodus who certainly have their place in the landscape, but just missed that window to be, you know, considered, you know, part of that group. Maybe it would have been the Big Five, who knows? Uh, Testament you could throw in there as well, but there's, you know, Prong, I think to a greater degree didn't get their time in the spotlight
1: it certainly sounds like it and by the way he's a huge fan of testament they've toured with testament several times uh and whenever anybody mentions testament in an interview with him he sings their praises to the heavens he's like as far as i'm concerned they're the greatest thrash band in the world um so you know good on him there the only ding against him is that he's apparently a new york jets fan but you know nobody's perfect (laughs) Mm. but but i do like one of the things he's not
0: a patriots fan buddy oh god
1: one of the things i like about him uh that comes across at at any rate is that he does have that real new york fuck you attitude of like you know i'm just gonna pick myself up and carry on and fuck everyone because i'm just doing my own thing and if you don't like it too fucking bad i really like that
0: yep agreed
1: All right, so let's get into the album then. Let's Uh, do it. So released in 1996, 13 songs, 46 minutes. So doesn't outstay its welcome. Uh, You know, not a bad number of songs, not a bad uh, run length, produced by Terry Date, as I mentioned before, uh, which explains a lot of how it sounds. (laughs) It has a very Terry Date sound to it. Um, And yeah, you know, was considered a flop at the time, despite selling 10,000 in its first week. Which I just I can't get over that, man. You're like, I know, man. I know people who run record labels, who run indie record labels now. They, 10,000 units, that's beyond their wildest dreams. Yep. <laughs> you know, well, for we lifetime time sales time that, that we grew up listening week.
0: to. Yeah, we see bands all the time that we grew up listening to that are still out there doing stuff today, and their new album comes out, and they don't sell anywhere near that in the first week.
1: Right. They sell like, if they sell a thousand, they're overjoyed. And I I mean, you know, people listening may not realize that seriously, if you release, especially a rock album, if you release an album now and it sells a thousand copies in its first week, you are over the fucking moon. You are. Holy cow. What a great success. Uh, It's it's absurd. I mean, you know, the, the number of sale units these days compared to the heyday, you know, of the 90s is just it's hard to believe that sales have dropped really quite that much, but they really have. It's amazing. Yep. Uh, And yeah, it's, um, this was, I don't know if it was the first album where they stopped using the prong logo because technically the first album didn't have a logo, I guess, but they've got that, you know, that prong symbol, which is, which they started with the first album. Uh, Right. And that's what, when you,
0: when the name came up, like I immediately thought of that symbol. Right, that right. is absolutely what popped into my head as soon as you said prong, because it was on Prove You Wrong. Um,
1: well, it was, yeah, On am beg to differ. It's overlaid over the uh, yeah. portraits of them on Prove You Wrong. Right, okay, so they've got a different mark, but they've definitely got the symbol. Uh, oh no, Whose Fist is, is This Anyway has a sort of stylized, I'm looking at them on Wikipedia now, has a stylized version of the symbol and just regular typeface for the... Let's uh, see. So does Prong actually? Yeah. So, so it's not like I mean now, if you look at the new stuff, they have a, an actual word mark logo with you know that's very recognisable and that they use everywhere. It's on T-shirts and everything. Um, yep. Yep. But certainly back then, they didn't. It would seem. So I'm not quite sure what people's problem with the cover was. Maybe they just didn't feel it was metal enough. But, you know, mid-90s, there was a lot of record labels were trying to do that. Let's make a, you know, let's give our rock acts a cover that doesn't turn people off, that looks a bit more mainstream. Uh, And this certainly does look that. So maybe that was the issue people had with it. I was going to ask you, actually, uh, because you're much better at this research, Lark, than me. Did you find any contemporary reviews of this album? Because I only found one or two, and they were really kind of short and perfunctory.
0: I did not, um, though to be fair, that was I didn't deep dive on that so much as I did on some of the interviews that he did in the past, but right, um right. I just it generally came across that this album at the time and um you know even since then was seen as not one of their best, which is interesting to me. Like I, I wanted to ask you, um, did Jonathan say why this particular album he did was not. One, yeah. So no. I would like, so Jonathan, if you're listening to this one, hopefully you are, uh, in the Facebook comments, like, what made this album jump out at you? Um, yeah. Because I oh. actually think in general, this album is better than Prove You Wrong um, as a whole. So it's interesting that it's kind of looked at, like, not that favorably in their catalog.
1: Well that's why I was wondering about the reviews yeah. I will just say I don't think Jonathan's on the Facebook group but you can always drop us an email. Uh, Jonathan go to thrushpodcast.com For sure. com and there are yeah there are links to our email uh, or indeed our Twitter accounts there. Uh, that you can get us on. But yeah that's why I asked you about the reviews because I the, the two I found two contemporary reviews. They were both quite short and they were both complimentary. They were both like yep this is a good prong record, you know, same old prong. Um and yet yeah apparently the critical reception overall was that it was bad and you know, didn't sell very well and fans didn't like it. And I'm like, oh, like I like say i'm I don't know that much about prong. And so I'm listening to it going, why this sounds like prong to me. Like what's the problem here? I don't get it. Um, but
0: interestingly, though, I don't see and again, I really only had that one album's understanding of what prong was. But I feel like this album is a very different sound than what the Prove You Wrong album was. So, like, right, if someone said, "like, oh, that sounds like Prong," like, I don't.
1: But I it's guess, not but that I, different to Cleansing, which was enormously popular. True, and true. Is right. the album that most Prong fans will tell you is their favorite. So, yeah, it's weird. I don't know. I don't get it. It's all uh, it's
0: if, that whole sign of the times thing, right? Where you you know, it's just like to to be there when the album's out and see what the what the sort of general consensus is about something and then to go back years later uh when you have the luxury of seeing like their entire discography sort of laid out and sort of right, what came right. before and what came after it's like it's uh it's just such a different dynamic
1: Well, and I have seen several sort of retrospective comments on this album where people have actually been really complimentary about it and said, oh, no, this was a a great album to go out on. So, yeah, I don't know. I also just wanted to uh, say just a quick rewind back to what we were talking about earlier. You said Sign of the Times. That reminded me. I wanted to say, talking about the Super Bowl halftime show, most of the time they're rubbish, but if anybody didn't see the Prince Super Bowl halftime show about 10 years ago, go and find that online because that was kind of amazing that was pretty special playing in the pouring rain and the man did not put a foot wrong he was amazing but anyway moving on
0: Uh (laughs) yeah i mean which is basically what you would expect from prince oh sure
1: sure but even so just
0: constantly delivered
1: yeah um right so we this is the first really sort of industrial album that we've done On this show, we've done, you know, modern albums that have clearly been influenced by the 90s industrial movement, Um, like the uh, Defiled album, for example. I was just going to say
0: Defiled,
1: yeah. Right. But we haven't done an actual full-on industrial. And this is, you know, this is not ministry. I wouldn't say this is, it's not a full-on industrial album. It's not Godflesh or something, but it is the closest we've come so far to doing an album of from that sort of heyday of the metal industrial genre. Um, so what's your kind of, uh, you know, how much of this stuff did you listen to in the 90s?
0: Um, not a ton. You know, uh, just in general, I I would say the 90s would be a period of time where I really dialed my listening down to the bands that I knew that I already liked, you know yeah. what I mean, as opposed to like really discovering anything new. I had a very knee-jerk reaction to the whole grunge movement. Um, industrial ministry is probably the one band because I had a roommate in college. I was in college from 92 to 96, and I had a roommate who was very into ministry. So I heard a lot of ministry, and we had a gigantic like sound setup in our in our place. So I listened to a lot of ministry, but of outside course. of that, the stereo think,
1: was like half the size of the room <laughs> for the love of
0: Pete. Like it was, just, it was something you'd have in the PA system at an actual concert yeah. and that's what we had. Um, so yeah, I would say that I'm just trying to think of the bands I was even listening to at that time. Alice in Chains is probably the one band I, I listened to just in terms of that, uh, few years of music. Like I did listen to some Pearl Jam, early Pearl Jam. Uh, Alice in Chains was the one band out of that time period, uh, one of Soundgarden's albums that I listened to, Um, not a lot of industrial stuff. I really kind of honed back in on what I had already liked, whereas during the mid to late 80s, I was literally buying every new album that came out every week. Because right, I was working yeah. at a grocery store, there was a music store in the same plaza and it, I was just scooping up everything. But when things changed, I kind of retreated a little bit into what I already knew. So yeah, I didn't have a lot I didn't have a lot of experience with this particular kind of music. Um,
1: so you weren't listening to KMfDM or no. a lot of Nine Inch Nails, or Misery Loves Co., or, you know, that that kind of uh, Cubanate, bands like that, you, you just weren't into that scene at all, really.
0: I had one Nine Inch Nails album, and I can't even remember what the name of it was.
1: Surely Downward Spiral, surely.
0: It was the Downward Spiral, yeah, yes. That's the one everybody correct. has. It's, yeah, their, it's, exactly. their,
1: it's their Brothers in Arms. It's, it's their Although Black Album. Although the one album.
0: before <laughs> it had, uh, had like a hole, right? It was the album before that.
1: Broken. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yes. That I also, one of my roommates had Broken. So we did listen to to Broken quite a bit, but yeah. So as you can see, very patchwork, uh, understanding of that genre and that time period.
1: Right. I was a bit more into it. Uh, partly because I had friends like you who were really into it. Uh, but they, but I had a lot of friends who were into it and they really, really were into it. So I got exposed to a lot of Uh, that kind of stuff, bands like KMFDM and what have you, uh, through those guys. Um, Mm -hmm. I wasn't a huge listener of it myself, but I, I liked it just fine. Uh, I would happily, you know, listen to it in the club or yeah, on my friend's stereos or whatever. Um, and the club aspect actually is something I wanted to mention because for listeners who aren't maybe familiar with that era, the repetition, uh, was a thing. Uh, in that it was kind of new. I mean, not so much by 96, admittedly, but when Ministry started doing their songs that are literally two chords uh, and just repeated 96 times, and you know, that was actually new at the time. That was quite innovative. And so uh, that may sound a bit weird, you know, to to modern ears sure. if we have like younger listeners who weren't around in that period. But one of the things to remember is that a lot of this music was meant to be heard Meant to be moved to. Meant to be heard in a club or at a gig or at a festival. You know, it was meant to be sort of stuff that you absorbed in a group while you're dancing. Um, and the repetition is very good for that. When you're sat listening to it on headphones and kind of being a muse about it and stroking your beard, you know, the repetition <laughs> can get can get to you a little sometimes, and it did on this album for me. But then I took a step back and thought, well, well, hang on a second, though, because some of the stuff that I've got on my shelf, some of my favourite music from this era, actually is quite repetitive, but it's because I became familiar with it by hearing it in clubs, where you want that repetition because you're throwing yourself around the dance floor or whatever. Um, A good comparison...
0: To go jump on, on. on that, not to interrupt you, but I would also say like that uh is a criticism that often gets thrown at like hair metal, right? Is that the structure of the songs, lots of repeated anthemic choruses, but then you realize when all these bands were kind of coming up on the Sunset Strip and playing to live crowds every night, that was yep. how you built your songs because that's yep. what you wanted. You wanted this anthemic chorus that the audience would shout and throw their fists in the air and things like that. And so if you didn't have that context and you were just looking at that music, it's very easy to be like yeah, super repetitive, super hooky, you know, but... It was, well, and it,
1: also that predictable song structure to an extent uh-huh. as well, because when you're playing, the, you know, the clubs where people may not actually have come to listen to you, and you're just playing to people who are there anyway, you don't necessarily want to be too creative with your song structure, because then it's harder for people to get into it.
0: Which makes me think about a whole separate topic that we can certainly save for another day, but just like the way, just thinking about that, right, where there was a time where it was the live act that kind of built your sound that would then try to be captured on a record, whereas in uh, other times, it's the exact opposite, where you're building a sound in the studio that you're then trying to capture live, you know, and, and how different those two approaches are to how a band's sound is built
1: absolutely yeah the, so the comparison i was going to make for uh people who were around at the time was a uh, prodigy's album fat of the land which is oh the oh my one
0: god that is Fa- a great yes i had right, that album. great album fire
1: starter breathe uh breathe, you know all so of, uh, smack my bitch up all of those great classic tracks but when that was released i was already a prodigy listener When that Uh was released, uh, I liked their early, really intense, complex dance albums, great stuff. Um, But when Fat of the Land was released, there was quite a bit of pushback initially from A, from the rock crowd, because there were guitars in it. And they were saying, wait a second, you're encroaching on our territory. From the dance crowd, because there were guitars in it, and they were saying, what are you doing putting guitars on a dance album? And also from Prodigy, existing Prodigy fans who were like, wait a second, this is really dumbed down. Like, you know, oh, my God, you've dumbed down The Prodigy. Where is the sort of detailed and complex dance stuff that we were used to? And uh, Liam from The Prodigy said, no, but we wanted to make an album that could be played live. Or rather, that was designed to be played live. And I was really skeptical of that at first until I started listening to the hearing the songs in clubs and at gigs and at festivals and going, oh, yeah actually, these really, really work. They are stripped down. They are really basic compared to the older tracks, but they really work in that context. And so, like I say, that's just kind of for people who weren't around or weren't into the industrial movement at the time, just remember that that was, you know, the club was king at the time, certainly. And even totally. live music, you know, was a bigger thing, I think. Not a bigger thing than it is now, but a bigger thing in terms of support. That was what drove sales of the album. You went on tour to sell the album. Whereas these days you go on tour to make your money.
0: (laughs) Yeah. yeah, Nowadays you go on tour to stay alive.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Um, But yeah, that's a
0: fascinating discussion. Yeah. So
1: it's, (laughs) I find it an interesting part of like the way the music business has changed and the way that tastes and styles have changed and stuff. So yeah, I just wanted to give a bit of context for people who weren't into that movement around that time. Yep. So, That aside, let's get into the album tracks then. So track one, the opening track, is Controller.
0: Dude, what a great opener.
1: Isn't it? Isn't it?
0: I feel like it's a perfect opener. It's it's got the hook. It's heavy. It's catchy. Um my sort of gut instinct was to say that it's my favorite song on the album, but I think there's one that that I like a a little bit better, but it is a fantastic opener. Like it gives you I think in many ways it gives you the best of the elements that you're going to hear on this album. Um
1: I would agree with that. I think it actually gives some elements that I wish would appear more throughout the album, if that makes sense. Um, the, The opening riff immediately made me think of Chaos A.D., you know, oh my
0: the, God, yes.
1: Refuse, yeah. resist. Like it, yep. it just, I was like, oh wow, that's, you know, I mean, I don't know if that's deliberate or not, but it just really put me in mind of KSAD. Um, one of the things I like uh, about this track, I mean, it is a great riff and it's, you know, it's a good, tight, well-constructed track. But one of the things I like about it are Victor's vocals, which can be a bit thin in places on the album, but here they're great. And one of the things that makes them great for me is he employs a really percussive style to his vocals like his vocals are kind of the rhythm of them matches the rhythm of the song uh as yes. if they're an extra layer of percussion and yep. that really works for me and I, I say that's an element thing that he does throughout the album but i wish he did it more in some places because i think it suits his voice he doesn't have the strongest voice in the world um You know, which is fine. It's metal. You don't need to be, you know, an opera singer or whatever, but he doesn't have the strongest voice. And so I think singing in that style helps, you know, just helps the songs and helps his voice sound better. But you're right. It's a great opener and really sets the tone for the rest of the album.
0: And I mean, that whole like rolling bass line with guitar accents over the top of it sort of thing, it it is kind of the sound on this album, right? So you definitely get that. You know, um, I think it as we talk about openers a lot, it, it does give you a good sort of map for what you're going to hear on the rest of the album to, to varying degrees and sometimes not as well executed, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, including as well the um, the wailing discordant guitar, which is...
0: Yeah, I, I really like that. Si- I, I'll, in my head, I call it like the siren effect, but it's that sort of, <laughs> you know, yeah. siren madness, um, you know, sort of uh, anxiety laden notes
1: yeah yeah well he's clearly a fan of it because he does it on several tracks yes he does uh, as well as like i mean this one i don't think has any pinch harmonics but he's also clearly a fan of those as well Uh um uh but yeah again it's it's really effective it's it's weird in the there are a few tracks and i'll mention a couple of others where he does this where the chorus is actually if like most songs the verse is fairly flat And then you rise up for the chorus and the chorus is louder and it rises up in tone and it's like, you know, and you might double track the vocals and stuff. And there are several tracks here, including this one where it's the opposite and the chorus actually goes down and it's quieter and it has less instrumentation and it doesn't double track the vocals. Uh, and it even goes down in, in tone, you know, drops an octave or something or half an octave. Um, and that's unusual like i say that's not how most songs go so it really makes it stand when it's done well it really works and makes it stand out and it th- th- this is one of the tracks that does it by having that discordant guitar rather than big massive chords underneath it um right
0: and especially when your main riff is big massive chords yeah. and so it's got that nice you know it's almost like the chorus is the catchy breath moment and then it's boom
1: right yeah, it's, uh, it is it is it is say unusual. It also uh, puts me in mind of something I read. Somebody asked him about being a three-piece, um, and he said that it just kind of worked out that way, but now he's gotten to really like it. And they did actually try having two guitarists at yeah. one point, and he said it, and it was just a mess. To him, it sounded like it was just kind of like sludgy and a mess and not at all what he wanted the sound of the band to be, whereas being a three-piece... It means you have to be really, really on the money. You know, you have to be tight and precise, uh, and really sort of every instrument gets its own place in the song. Um, right, and because again, there's
0: nowhere to hide,
1: right? Exactly. I think we've mentioned that before. Yeah. But it also means, like, I say, even, you know, even when you're in the studio, you can multi track. So he still could have put those big chords underneath yep. this chorus, even while he's playing that wailing guitar bit, but didn't, uh, Possibly because he wanted to be able to reproduce it live. Possibly just because, why not let the bass shine for a bit? And it's, it's, it's an interesting choice. Agreed. All right, so track two, uh, after that blinding opener, is Caprice.
0: Which, this is where I really got the white zombie vibe. Oh,
1: That's, right.
0: Like, I feel like a lot of this album is very white zombie. And I actually feel like his vocals many times lean into a Rob Zombie um, sort of sound for me. Because other than that, like, I I think there's not many vocalists that sound like him or Rob Zombie. And so for me, like there's a Venn diagram there of where the two of them kind of overlap a little bit. And, and because this has almost like a disco-y groovy synth, you know, feel to it. I, I, in my head, I was calling it industrial disco. (laughs) That, that's kind of um, what I think a lot of white zombie sounds like as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, Um, uh, that's absolutely true. And uh, Rob Zombie, another New York guy, we, who hasn't got the strongest voice in the world but has a very rhythmic and percussive style of uh-huh. vocals. So yeah, I can see that actually, yeah. 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 Um yeah, I like this one for the I like the sort of industrial sounding keyboard stabs and textures, especially Agreed. in the opener. Uh, I like the bass heavy verses. I've mentioned this before, I'm a sucker for you know, dropping out the guitar and just having bass and drums and vocals on the on the verses. I think that works really well. Well, when it's done well. Um the only thing. I think that about especially song,
0: works well for the groove stuff. You know? Yes,
1: yes, absolutely. Well, because you can hear the groove through the totally. bass. Yeah, yeah. The only thing about this song for me is I wish the chorus was a bit stronger. It's okay. It, you know, yep. this is a good song, but it, the chorus I wish was maybe a bit stronger, especially as, like I said, we just had another song where the chorus was kind of down compared to the verse. So, but other than that, yeah, I think this is a really good, uh, interestingly textured track.
0: Well, and at two minutes and forty-seven seconds, like it is over before you know it.
1: Right. Well, and there's a lot of tracks like that on this album, isn't yep. there? You know, it's uh, again, none of these tracks outstay their welcome. Uh, you know, you can, I mean, later there's one or two tracks that maybe I think you probably could have lost without losing too much, um, but none of them as individual tracks are right. you know too long or you think, oh god, you know, get over, get it over with, and move on already. Because yeah barely any of them are over 4 minutes i think even um
0: yeah there's one there's one over 5 and there's only a couple over 4 and everything else is like 313 329 337 so it's they definitely um even though none of these songs you know fit like that classic rock formula they definitely all fit within that time frame for the most part
1: wait which tracks over 5 minutes oh uh,
0: crowd not- division
1: uh Oh, maybe we have different editions of the album because the edition I have is only three minutes ten long. That track. Really? Yeah.
0: Interesting.
1: Huh, okay. Uh, Anyway, um, yeah, so there's three tracks above four minutes and the rest are all under four minutes. And yeah, and even a couple under three minutes. So it's, yeah, as as we said, like none of these tracks really kind of uh, outstay their welcome or go on too long uh, which is quite a contrast to the previous album <laughs> <that we'd covered. laughs>
0: yeah for sure yeah, uh, it's kind of a nice palate cleanser for sure
1: it certainly is yeah yeah track three then rude awakening the title track
2: let cool.
0: Probably my favorite song on it. This is the one that I was going back and forth between this one and Controller as far as my favorite song on the album. But I think because this song is a little bit more melodic, I like it a little bit better. Um, It has this sort of hypnotic groove to it that I really like. Uh, The guitars are very... And throughout the album, I feel like the guitars sound really open and raw. Um, But this song has a little bit of the cult in it which I think also gives it a little extra flavor, a little bit of Billy Duffy sort of cult uh, feel to it, Um, both in the guitars and in the percussion that I um, feel like for me, just elevates it a little bit more over controller as far as my favorite song on the album. I really like the song. Uh,
1: So do I. And actually I'm the same. I, you know, it's uh, maybe on a different day, I might say a, different specific trap was my favorite, but this is a contender, you know, this is in the mix for sure. Um, It's, I love the, the wailing again, they're talking about the wailing guitars. I I love the the single note guitar that comes in from the rhythmic guitars over the chorus. That whole da da That is right on my alley. I can't explain why, but there is something about that sound with totally those agree. notes and that tone just absolutely does it for me.
0: Um, and then how, like after the first run through, they just it, then it's just like dun, dun dun, like it slows down and they right. hit it once and let it resonate and like that. I love
1: that. Uh, that's enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah totally. This is also this is the first track with what feels like a proper middle eight as well. Um. Again, symptom of the industrial era, like getting rid of guitar solos and that sort of thing. Yep. There are some guitar solos on this album. None of them are, you know, uh, what you'd consider sort of virtuoso <laughs> solos. Yeah, they're
0: nothing to write home about.
1: Right. Um. And even the middle eight here, you know, there's there's a guitar piece in it. It's hard to even call it a solo. Uh. But it's good. It's effective. It's just yeah. But that's again par for the course for this sort of era of this sort of music. Um, I mean,
0: I would say this is the closest to radio-friendly
1: oh, on for this sure. album, right? Yeah. You know,
0: it's a four-minute and 18-second, somewhat melodic, still keeping the groove, fits in with the rest of the album. Like, this this is the radio single, in my mind.
1: Yeah, absolutely. If Which is
0: probably was, right? Wasn't it?
1: I think this was a single, yeah, uh, from this album, I believe. Uh- if there were singles. I mean, given that they got dropped three weeks after.
0: <laughs> it doesn't sound like they had much time to... Uh, <laughs> it
1: was released. Uh, oh, no, 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 it was, yeah. The, ti- the title track was a single, yeah. um okay. And uh, Billboard gave it a good review, apparently. Um, yeah, if there's one thing I'd change about this track, this is really, like, inside baseball nerdy fucking songwriting stuff, but if there's one thing I'd change, I would remove the pre-chorus from the final section and just go straight from the repeated first verse into a final chorus, because that tends to give a song a real driving full steam ahead feel, uh, you know as if like we ain 't got time for pre choruses, just get to the chorus right um, that 's a real, real nitpick, but that's that 's my one criticism of this song, apart from that, yeah, you know this is really, really good song and representative again of the rest of the album. I mean you could have put this as the opener, this could be for sure the opener and you know Although, i'm not saying it would work better than the first one but you I, could put this as the opener
0: yeah you totally could but i do think that controller ends up being a better representation of what the rest of the album is this one i think would almost misrepresent i think what the rest of the album is which is so I, it's too I melodic yeah, I, I, so I think it actually fits in a good spot. But I, yeah. I like that that's your Professor Music note for this um, particular episode, <laughs> though, where you, we should do one of those in episode where you take a deep <laughs> dive into the actual composition of the song and you know give your, like, if I was at the helm here, this is how right. I would have done that.
1: If I were Terry Date, this is what I would yeah, say. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> nice. Uh, all right, track four is Unfortunately...
0: This one sounds very ministry to me, like New World Order ministry. Um, you've got the siren guitar, you've got sort of the circular pattern to the song. Um, I like how the there are parts of the guitar that are just sort of muted in the background. You can almost barely hear them, mm-hmm. and then they come smashing up to the foreground like a second later.
1: Yeah, I think the uh, part of the reason that this has a ministry feel to it is because the, um, most of the riff and chorus are built around semitones, uh, and Ministry pretty much built their entire career off of semitones. Um, if you listen to uh, New World Order, in fact, that whole riff, that... That's just... Yep. It's, it's all semitones. Um Uh, And it works, I'm not knocking it, it's brilliant, it's a great track. But I think, so it's very easy when you hear something like this that has a similar tonal pattern to it, for it to remind you of Ministry, especially again in this uh, genre. I love the pinch harmonics, they sound very dime bag to me. Mm -hmm. Which again, that's probably Terry Dates' influence. Um, I love that the, we haven't talked much about the lyrics, and these lyrics are very interesting, because they're very personal. Uh, You know, they're kind of, I mean, they're not, um, they're not obviously about sort of bigger issues in the world other than the fact that the world is shit uh, and (laughs) isn't everything terrible, which, you (laughs) metal. Which is kind Um, of an
0: overall issue, yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, But in terms of the sort of the details of the lyrics, they are generally very self-examining, very reflective, very contemplative but not in a calm way, in a very sort of frantic, um, yep. you know, uh, depressive way in, in some cases. Um, Which
0: those guitar, to- like that siren guitar, really kind of underscores that's that.
1: exactly what I was going to say, yeah. The the discordant, repetitive nature of the music on this track especially really matches the lyrics well, I think. Uh, I don't think it's vocal performance on this track is as good as some of the other tracks, but Mm -hmm. I think the lyrics and the music go together really, really well on this track. I would agree. Um, Oh, actually talking about the, there was talking about the semitone. The one thing, one note I'd made on the chorus was, uh, I love this little thing he does where on the chorus, most of it is a monotone and he follows the guitar. But then, when the guitar drops at the end of the line, so does his vocal. But his vocal doesn't drop to the same note. He keeps his the vocal note a semitone higher than the guitar. Um, Which, again, you know, semitones. But it's it's a lovely, lovely effect. And if you if you're wondering why the chorus sounds good, I think that's basically why. So listen to it again, and you'll hear that and go ah. And it's just a nice little nice little touch because there's you know there'd be a great temptation to match the notes right. to the guitar obviously and by not doing that you create this lovely musical contrast that uh, you know that i think really works
0: i love that you point that out because that sort of gives i think sometimes as people listen through or or even with a band like prong like it's those types of nuances that a lot of times will not necessarily go unnoticed but but maybe in a sense or untalked about you know in terms of those little nuances that uh, i don't think they get as much credit for as they probably should.
1: Yeah, I agree. Well, and these nuances are important. You know, when the music overall is this kind of fairly brutal, battering Correct. noise, <laughs> you <Yep>. know, <laughs> then I think it's important to note note that, uh, you know, well, it's like, um, uh, who was it? Shane Embry from Napalm Death. I remember back when you know people were still going on about napalm death just being noise and i remember an interview with shane embry where he seemed quite offended he was like we do play notes you know yeah (laughs) like this is music
0: (laughs) well and i think in general like it's it's easier to pick out like technical prowess when it's guitar you know like it's so easy to be like wow you know listen to the complexity of that or something but when you're playing with uh, the vocals over the line or over percussion or it's like, it's harder to, um, sort of pick that out. Like, I, I think a lot of times of the way that, uh, Ronnie James Dio and would sing over like the chords and the drum line mm-hmm. in a way that was very, uh, you almost couldn't put your finger on it. Of like, what is different about this, or like, but it was his delivery, you know, and the way that he would do that, which was very intentional and and um, created a very unique sound.
1: Right, and again, this sort of melodic counterpoint of you know yep. maybe doing things that work against the yes. chords and the and uh, the melodies that you're hearing in the instruments with the vocals um, ju- at just the right time. Yeah, it, it can work really well. So, um, and yeah, I mean, there's not a lot of it on this album, but when he does it. It works, he does it really well. Uh so track five is face value.
2: Never looking beyond the front of all your present fears. Our hearts will never be caught again by vision
0: Which I another song I really like. I love how thick the bass line is and how like grungy and dirty the guitars are. It, it's it almost sounds like a similar line to "Rude Awakening," almost like a slower version of "Rude Awakening." Until right. the choppy sort of echo effects come in, um, and then it sort of picks up. I like the record scratch sort of guitar effects, um. And it's just got a great like bottom. This song, it's just really. I feel like of the five songs so far on the album, it's like it has the th- sort of the thickest bottom.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah, it's got a lovely gated drum sound as well. Actually, yeah. Uh which is which is very nice. And yeah, it's that stop-start riff is brilliant. Um, it's awesome. Yeah, it's uh, yeah th- that's an absolute classic riff, uh, and I love when he's. Uh, again, doing his rhythmic vocals when he sings, erase it, deface it, conceal it. That's, that works really, really well for me. The rest of the lyrics, the, the verse lyrics, especially feel the rhythm of it feels a bit forced to me on this track. I do like this track, but it's, you know, it's a fine lyric, but it kind of feels like maybe a second pass could have made it feel a bit more natural. It just feels like he's kind of, I don't know, maybe trying a bit too hard, um, to fit some of the (laughs) lines in with the music. Uh, But that's really, that's my only criticism of this track. Other than that, yeah, it's a great riff. Uh, As you say, it has a lovely thick bass sound, Um, good drum sound. Yeah, I do, I do like it a lot.
0: And I feel like to this point, like these, this, the first five songs on this album to me uh, really are sort of locked in. And at this point I feel like the album is, is really solid so far.
1: Okay. So, Right, but you're saying the first five. That's interesting. Okay, so let's move on to track six then, which is Avenue of the Finest.
2: Well, I
0: First week song in the album for me.
1: Really? That's yep. interesting. I feel like
0: this is where it starts to dip. I, I almost feel like in comparison, this song is lazy in terms of it's just the all of it. Um it's very sort of rock-ish and like that it doesn't do anything for me. And it was it was the first song that I like noticeably was taken out of the vibe of the album. Because I feel like even though the first five are offering, you know, different pieces, but they were different pieces of the same thing. And I just felt like it had a really good, solid foundation up to song five. And this was the one where I felt like it took its foot off the gas pedal in terms of the momentum that the album had going.
1: That's really interesting because I feel the same way about the next track.
0: (laughs) Well, I also kind of feel the same way about the next track. I feel like six, seven is where we start to falter.
1: Right, but what I mean is, but I would have said the first six. I think basically, I think the first three tracks on this album are like almost untouchable, just fantastic yep, agree. Uh, tracks. And then the, fir- the next three to make the first six, in my opinion, are still, you know, that is a great selection of six tracks where it's really front loaded, this album, I think. And those mm-hmm. six tracks are a really, really great opener. And then it's track seven for me where things start to falter. But for you, it starts here. That's interesting.
0: Yep,
1: especially because I feel like this is one of the most traditionally metal tracks on the album so I I expected you to really like this track because it's got an enormous amount of palm muted chugging going on to me, this track feels like Anthrax this feels like a track from the John Bush era of Anthrax I was just
0: going to say, it's definitely the John Bush era of Anthrax for sure Um, yeah, and maybe that's why it bothered me Because I feel like up until this point, this album is not that. like, And so uh, I felt like it was striving to be more than that. And so maybe it was this song sort of coming back and falling into what might be seen as a more formulaic approach actually had the opposite effect on me. Because I had, through five songs, been convinced that, like, you're not going to find that here. That's not what this album is. And then we get here, and it's like, oh, well, now that you've sort of established that standard, this feels out of place with the expectations that you've sort of set up so far. And I just felt like it started to lose momentum.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that was literally the first time I heard it. I was like, I could just imagine this on the back half of volume eight. (laughs) Really, really. For sure. Yeah, no, I
0: think it would actually be more at home there than it is here.
1: Interesting. Oh, man. See, I quite like it. It's not my, you know, my favorite track in the album by any means, but I do think it's a strong track, and I especially like the um, the sliding up and down the neck rhythm. The do you know on the yep. guitar chords? It's uh, it, you know, I really like that. But uh, so let's move on to track seven then, which is slicing.
0: Yeah, I, I mean it's a little bit more up tempo than the song before it, but again, does not do a lot for me. Other than sort of like the tempo changes in the song, I I didn't think it was that interesting, and I I definitely felt like at this point we're in that sort of mid album slump.
1: Yeah, I I wouldn't disagree. Like I say, this for me is the track where things start to you know slump a little bit. Um, not helped by the fact that in the opening, at least, like you say, this ha- this track has. Tempo changes, but the opening tempo is basically the same tempo as the previous two tracks. Um, and that doesn't help, I don't think. I, I think it doesn't do this track any favours because your attention starts to wander. You're like, oh, okay, here we go, another track of roughly the same tempo with a s- roughly the same drum pattern. Um, and obviously it then changes, and it's not that for the rest of the track. Right. But yeah, I, th- I think opening with that is you know, was maybe not the best decision. Agreed. Um, but I do like the guitar under the pre chorus because it sounds psychotic. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know whether I'd say I like it per se, but it, it's effective. It's because re- it does just, it puts you in mind of somebody going completely batshit insane. Yep. Which I'm sure was probably the intention. Um, so, track eight is Without Hope.
0: Now, this song resonated with me, but in such an obscure way. So there is sort of like um, a percussive, almost like glass tapping effect that's happening in parts of the song that reminded me of the Streets of Rage soundtrack.
2: <laughs> wow.
0: <laughs> the old Sega Genesis video game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think it was, I wrote their name down, Yuzo Koshiro, who did the soundtrack for that game and there's and it's my favorite song on that album it's it's basically the boss music on that album where uh when you get when you scroll right enough on the screen it it starts to fade into that and there's a very pronounced sort of like uh you know that ding 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 effect on it and immediately as i was listening to the song i was like this reminds me of streets of rage
1: and so i had to actually
0: go look it up so uh (laughs) so yeah so that is what uh drew me to this song so uh, compared to six and seven i feel like we get back on track with song eight
1: right see yeah so we're a track out of sync for me i'm not much of a fan of this one um because there's not a lot to hook you in like the the chorus isn't bad but it's not the best and the verse there's nothing rare to really grab you it kind of feels a bit like filler uh unfortunately uh, which the well, rest even the, the solo
0: know. on this song is sounds almost like a MIDI solo. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, there's a, definitely almost like a like a, a gamey feel to this song, and that that's what kept me interested, or at least piqued my interest after two songs where I felt like that had sort of lapsed.
1: Right. It's funny as you mentioned Streets of Rage. Actually, I literally just replayed Streets of Rage uh, so on, a, on an good, emulator dude. about like uh, two or three weeks ago. Played through nice. the whole thing on an emulator. Um, yeah, it's. <laughs> The the whole track to me just kind of feels extraneous. It's not bad per se. None of the uh, other tracks on this album are bad. Uh, right. You know, Victor's clearly a good songwriter, but this track just feels surplus to requirements for me, Um, mm. which is, you know, which is a shame. When you've got 13 tracks, it's like, you know, you, I don't think anybody would have been unhappy with 12, you know? um, No,
0: and I would even argue 9 or 10 would have made an amazing album.
1: Oh, sure, but then it literally would have been like half an hour long.
2: (laughs) Yeah, no, that's true. (laughs) Uh,
1: So track nine, move on then, is Man's Ruin.
0: Probably the thrashiest opening on the album, right?
1: Oh yeah, yeah. Feels like full on metal for sure. Yep. Fast tempo, crazy chugging. A thrashy. The riff itself is is a kind of thrash style riff as well. Yep. Um This is another one that has the uh, reversal of the tone change, where this has a high verse and then goes down for the chorus. Which again, you know, interesting effect. Um, but I do like it. Uh, I the do only too. The only thing I would criticize in this is the middle eight, which is just boring. Um, well, you know, I don't necessarily need a guitar solo, but don't just repeat the main riff with some weird keyboard texture <laughs> over it. You know that? No, you're I not need, here for that. Yeah, I need more than that.
0: <laughs> yeah, this this is another song that had kind of a white zombie feel to me. Um, and uh, But again, overall, like one of the heavier songs on the album and definitely the heaviest opening, I feel.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, All right, track 10, Innocence Gone.
0: Uh, Much more of a punk vibe on this one, I felt like. Uh, The drums seem like more active on this song.
1: Oh, they Um, are, yeah, yeah.
0: The cymbals and toms in particular, and, and it gets like thrashier as it gets deeper into the song. So I feel like they definitely, it was almost like they took their foot off the gas pedal in the middle and then really started to pick it up to try to build toward a finish. And I feel like this song continues that.
1: Yeah, I mean, for me, I would say this song is kind of... I mean, like I say, I like Man's written, but to me, this song is kind of the start of that build back up towards the end. Um, yeah. I actually think this is the most Ministry-sounding track on the album. Um, interesting. Rather than... Yeah, I would say this track for sure. If, any, if I had to pick one track that you know sounds the most like Ministry, it would be this one. Um, but I do like it. It's got an interesting key. It doesn't sound like anything else on the record. No, it Uh, doesn't. Which is in itself interesting, but in a good way, not like in a
0: like. Whereas the um, uh, which was the one that I didn't necessarily. Oh, uh, whereas Avenue of the Finest didn't sound like anything else either, but kind of not in a good way for me. This one, this one is a nice departure. It kind of takes it up a notch.
1: Right, it's unique, but it's the same kind of flavor. Um, and you mentioned the drumming. Yeah, I noted that as well. The drumming. I mean, the drumming on this record is great. Like, there's no, you know, it's good, solid, great timing and everything, but yep. this track does feel like it's got a lot of energy behind the A little the more kit. flair. Yeah, there's all those fills, there's a lot of cymbal work. It's also one of the tracks that sounds least like a drum machine. Yes. Um, because, obviously, a lot of industrial bands did use drum machines, either alongside a live drummer or sometimes instead of a live drummer. Like, early ministry i'm not sure about later stuff but early early ministry albums uh the albums had no live drums it was all drum machines and then when right. they went on the road they had dual drummers to replicate the sounds but in the studio it was all drum machines um and I, they
0: do some of that on this album too there was a i forget who was credited on the album uh, i have it here charlie clauser was drum programming and keyboards
1: Yeah, right. And and you can tell that some of them, some of the percussive elements and stuff are drum machines, but there is also a real drummer, for sure. You know, on all of these tracks, and some of them that's more obvious than others. This is one where, yeah, as I say, it's kind of you feel like the drum machine has probably had the least influence on on the track here, and it's just the live, mostly the live drummer doing a really great job.
0: Yeah, this feels like a song that would play well live.
1: Yeah, it does actually. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, unlike. I would say track eleven, which is Dark Signs.
2: <laughs> Careful what you keep it may just catch your back. How much more than the nightmare of the past? Think twice about <laughs> the room that you asked for.
0: I felt like this one uh, is very crunchy. It's a kind of up-tempo. I, I also felt like it recaptured some of the catchiness of the earlier parts of this album. You know, it's aggressive. It's got that sort of siren effect, and it has that um, sort of catchier pattern that some of the earlier songs had, I thought.
1: Yeah, it's a bit of a sledgehammer to the ears, this one, I think. It's got the double-time snare, like, pummeling away um it i do like it it's very impact the start especially is really like that has a big impact pounding drums and like squealing guitar this track reminds me of killing joke really really reminds me of killing joke Uh, and paul raven the bassist was formerly of killing joke Mm -hmm. and killing joke in general were a big influence on tommy victor so that's probably not you know a massive surprise that there would be a track that sounds a bit like Killing Joke. Um, But it really does to me. And I really like Killing Joke, so I really like this track.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's a good tune. I, I feel like it continues that momentum toward a solid
1: close. It does, yeah. Okay, so, right. Track 12 is Close the Door. and this track to me feels we are talking about building up towards the end of the album if i were making this album this would be the last track i think you this sounds exactly like an album closer say. oh there you yep. go yeah
0: <laughs> 100% it's got a great bassline this this to me almost has like a michael jackson vibe to it like a thriller vibe to it um it's very groovy Uh, the the snare there's a great snap to it there's some great riffs in here it's got that rolling sort of vibe and it builds and keeps that uh catchy feel from dark signs kind of going so it feels like we've we've built to where we are now here and recovered from that sort of mid-album slump and i wholeheartedly agree with you like the song is called close the door it should be the closer to the album right (laughs)
1: Do you know, I hadn't even thought about the fact that the title sounds like a closer as well.
0: <laughs> yep, absolutely.
1: But yeah, I mean you're right, it is a really it's a groovy track. Uh I could imagine this one on a Nine Inch Nails album.
0: I actually wrote that same note, Nine Inch Nails next to it. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So good. I think we so it seems like we were off sync by like one track earlier, but we're, by track 12 we're back on track together now.
1: Back in back simpatico, yeah. Yeah. yeah it's absolutely. like it's got a good chorus, it's got the quiet breakdown bit in the middle eight and then building back up. Um but yeah, that's not to disparage it because I really, really like this track. And like I say, yeah, I, I agree that it should have really think this should be the album closer. It feels like a closer. It's probably the best track on the back half of the album for me. Um yeah, you know, I really It would have like-
0: had me. Coming right back to track one, exactly. Like if the if that is the goal is to get you to listen to that album right over again, I would have went right from close the door into controller. That yep. felt very. That feels like a good loop.
1: That would feel natural. Yeah, I agree one hundred percent. But instead, there is one more track, and that is Proud Division.
0: There's a little bit of Pantera in this one, but overall yep. I felt like the song just wasn't that interesting and it seems kind of vanilla to me. Yep. It's just like from Close the Door, it just feels like a, a big step down and kind of a bummer to, to end the album on.
1: <laughs> no, I, I agree. And yes, I I also think there's a bit of Pantera in there. It is quite a groove track, but it just doesn't feel like it belongs here. I mean, it mm-hmm. has a proper, proper guitar solo as well. It's probably the only track that has what you could consider a real guitar solo. Um, and it's not bad per no. se. It just, yeah, it doesn't belong here at the end, I think. Um, I mean,
0: I feel like you could have taken this and swapped it out with, you know, six or seven. Right. And you might have been okay, but definitely um, disrupts the vibe when you should have ended with the song before it.
1: Yeah, which is a shame because yeah, up until that point, it's uh, it had been building back up to a climax quite nicely, um, but then yeah, and it, this-
0: and it sort of reinforces the idea that it's front loaded. Whereas if you hadn't had right. this song here, you would have been like, "Wow, starts out awesome, dips a little in the middle, but has a great close." This is a good listen all the way through album. But when you you know sort of trip at the end of it, it just reinforces the whole thing of like, yeah, the first half of the album is really great.
1: That's a good point. I hadn't thought about that, but yeah. I think you're absolutely right. Well, it's like how, en- you know, this is why endings are so important in absolutely. in all manner of entertainment. I <laughs> I just did a co- podcast uh, a couple of weeks ago about the last season of Voltron. Uh, and we, we had that discussion there, like, you know, endings are really hard, man. Uh, and they're really important because they're what people walk away with. Um, 100%. And yeah, so it it is a bit of a shame. I think it does the album a, a disservice because it is it does, you're right, it increases the feel of it being... Front loaded I'll tell you what this album reminds me of in that sense, is uh, Fear Factory's album Demanufacture,
2: uh-huh. which
1: which we will almost certainly that's on my list of albums to to get to at some point on this show. We will talk about that album. Um, now obviously they don't sound even though they're an industrial metal band, they don't sound similar. This album does not sound like demanufacture at all, but it has the same thing where none of the tracks are bad, and it's not as a whole too long but there's just not quite enough variety in some of the tracks. And so somewhere around halfway to two thirds of the way through, you just kind of slide off it. Uh, And then it picks back up again at the end, but you know, you have to sort of go, Oh wait, is this a new track? Did we change tracks? I, I I didn't notice, Um, which is a shame. You know, it's, uh, as I say, the album as a whole, I think this is a good album, but, it could have been a little bit tighter.
0: Yeah. Agreed. I I feel like if this song was, if this album, you know, length aside was like nine or 10 songs, really great stuff. And there's just a few songs that take the shine off of of it for me.
1: Yeah. It's a shame. Um, But overall, like I say, I really liked it. And I was even less familiar with prong than you are. And it makes me want to go, And listen to more prong, because it makes me think, oh, I should have been into this band, actually. You know, now that I listen to it now, I'm thinking, like, why wasn't I into this band? And I genuinely don't know. I genuinely don't know why they never kind of became part of my regular listening. But for some reason, they just didn't. Uh, And listening to this now and listening also to, uh, you know, sort of going back and listening to some earlier stuff so I could make comparison... Um, yeah, I'm thinking like, yeah, actually, this is really good. This is my kind of thing. Why haven't I been listening to this for the last 20 years? So uh, I aim to rectify that.
0: Yeah, I feel like this band is definitely, you're going to find more to dig into that you like for sure.
1: Yeah, I, I think so. I hope so. Um, what about you?
0: I mean, overall, I really dug this album. I, In fact, I think I dig it more because it's different than what I thought prong was because when i picked up uh prove you wrong off of the strength of unconditional which is a song i really liked i was disappointed with a lot of the rest of that album i actually felt like it wasn't a great representation of what the rest of the album was and i never really it never really made it into my steady rotation um and i kind of just fell off prong at that point point. and so to come back and have this album and spend a lot of time with it I also feel like, well, you know what, maybe I need to listen because I didn't listen to their other albums around that album. Um, I need to go back and revisit that because there's a lot here that I like.
1: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, th- I think we're in agreement on that then, yeah. Um, all right. So, Uh, I guess that brings us to the end. So let me do the usual spiel. Thank you for listening, everyone. And remember, if you do enjoy the show, you can support us by going to patreon.com slash thrash it out. You can spread the word, you can leave us a review on iTunes or Google Play or the Apple podcast store, whatever it is. uh, and we will be very grateful for that. If you want to get in touch, go to thrashitoutpodcast.com for links to uh, email and our Twitter accounts. Or, of course, you can join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash out. So that brings us to the matter of homework. And it's your choice this time, Brian.
0: Well, I mean, I'm looking at the episode numbers for this volume, and it feels like we're definitely in the second half of this volume. So I, and they were just back
1: some, cresting. Yeah. Just cresting. Yeah.
0: So I probably have a couple few more picks in my sort of respect your elders, uh, you know, sort of approach to this season. And I think it's time for Saxon.
1: Oh, I think it's wow. time for Saxon. So <laughs> was we not gonna, expecting that.
0: <laughs> so um, I think we're going to do. The 2015 album Battering Ram, which is the 21st album from Saxon. Uh, Mostly because I've talked a lot about Thunderbolt, which was the album that they put out last year. And I've talked about it on Power Chords and stuff. And I also think it's just a shade under what they did on Battering Ram. Um, There are definitely albums in Saxon's past that we could go revisit... One of the things I struggle with with earlier Saxon albums is that the production does not do them justice and people would be forgiven for thinking that they're not as heavy as they actually are because the albums just don't bring that to the forefront in the way that the Andy Sneap produced last two albums most definitely do. So that is why we're going to do Battering Ram from 2015 because I feel like it is a stellar representation of how heavy these guys actually are and how vital they still are 40 years into their career.
1: Fantastic. That's Okay, this is going to be an interesting one because the only Saxon album that I've listened to is, I think, from the 80s. Is it Tales from a Storyteller's? Is that Saxon?
0: It's called Tales
1: from a Storyteller's Night or something like that? Are you searching it right now? I am. (laughs) Oh, God, I can't even remember. Uh, Oh, no, that's Magnum. That's Magnum, not Saxon. See, I always get Magnum and Saxon mixed up. Um, So, actually, then, I don't think I've ever heard a Saxon album.
0: I'm pretty sure that you have at one point. Uh, It just may have been a really long time since you've heard them. And definitely, like, over in the States, I feel like they have never really gotten their due especially as part of the new wave of British heavy metal. Like, I don't, I just don't think they've gotten their due. There there are definitely songs that have bubbled to the top for them. But right. when you look at Iron Maiden and Judas Priest and that kind of stuff, like Saxon just doesn't get the recognition they deserve, which is why I was so excited, and we'll talk about this in the episode, that they toured with Priest. Right. Because I feel like that was a great tour for them to go out and really blow people away on, which is what I consistently have heard from people that have not seen them live before.
1: Cool. Yeah. I'm looking at their discography and I'm looking at their singles and I, I genuinely don't recognize any of these song titles. (laughs) This is quite shocking to me. I just realized I don't, I'm not familiar with any Saxon songs at all. So this is going to be really interesting.
0: It certainly will. I'm looking forward to it. And for people who either haven't listened to them for a super long time or, um, you know maybe haven't really listened to them at all but like some of those other new wave of british heavy metal bands i i feel like they will find something to really sink their teeth into with this album
1: fantastic all right well then uh i will speak to you then and we'll uh see you all next time
0: take care everyone